to Everyday Anarchism, dear listener and dear guest. My guest today is Ruth Kinna, still the record holder uh, for most times on Everyday Anarchism. And uh, she is back today to talk about news from nowhere, which we uh, discussed in our episode uh, about William Morris. And we had had planned on, I can admit to the listeners, we had planned on, I had planned on discussing it in that episode. But um, I, I think we spent so much time really talking about Morris's relationship to the movement of anarchism that we decided it was best to put aside this, this anarchy, as you've described it, or as Kropotkin has described it. So in the first episode, we get Morris's political views, his, his journey, where he fits in this movement, and today we will get his his anarchy, his utopia, news yeah. news from nowhere. And again, I'll say it's generally understood to be a in, in some ways, if not a response, at least in relationship with this work by mm. Edward Bellamy, looking backward, which is this progressive technocratic world in which the you know all of your needs are seen to by a sort of unseen machinery mm. that no one has any fear or want or hunger or any of those things because industrial society has solved the problem of production and distribution. And so we yeah. can start right there and say news from nowhere is, is not that it does not seem to have this centralized solution this dream of the planner at all it's something entirely different so maybe we can talk about the composition of it but i thought we'd just jump right in and just tell the yeah. listener what what's this world like yeah so so this is a so this is an imaginary place that that morris has woken up in um and it's so he's he's in 1890 and he wakes up sometime in the 20th or 21st century, I can't remember exactly when, but it's a, it's a long time in the future and it's after the revolution. And, but he's still in London. Um, and the joy of the book in the opening sections, I think is, is his description of, of how he wakes up and has to rub his eyes. Uh, because the, the, the Hammersmith Bridge, which is where he lived in London and which was, which actually was quite a revolutionary bridge when it was built at its time, but Morris thought was completely hideous. And is a sort of like a, a symbol of, of Victorian engineering and technological advancement. He wakes up and he's delighted to see that it's disappeared. And in its place is this fantastic stone bridge. Uh, and, and that's how the, the, you're kind of taken into this, this world where, as you say, I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing technocratic about it. If anything, it's a, it's a book uh, which describes how we can um i guess rediscover our love of making things our love of production uh and live in a world um he, that he would describe as one of, of well-being and riches rather than profit and wealth um and i think that's kind of one of the main themes of the book and then it takes us into um a description of how the how this how this how this world operates how it how the exchange relations are, are, are regulated by, by human interactions, how, the, how there is no government, um, and how they arrive there. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the main ground of the book. Okay, wonderful. 
So something that, again, I feel like we didn't quite cover enough in our last episode. So I guess we can have another Morris episode in 2024, <laughs> if we if we can imagine, that. unless the revolution comes before, um, and then we don't need we don't need such a thing. Is I don't think we discussed the Middle Ages enough, and there's a sense for me that this is you know Bellamy's book is called Looking Backward, and yep. the idea is that we've sort of pushed through the growing pains of industrial civilization and come out on the other side, really, and this is an idea associated with John Dewey, among others, that our politics and our social arrangements have caught up with our economic and industrial arrangements in the 19th century. This is Dewey's description of the problem. We have reorganized our economic life, but we do not have a politics and a society that matches that. Mm -hmm. That is not what Morris thinks needs to happen. We do not need to reorganize our life to match up with industrial society. It is not that no. humanity has fallen behind technology. It is that technology and profit, which, I mean, you could describe capitalism as a, as a form of technology mm -hmm. or an organizing principle of technology, has left behind yep. humanity. And he looks backward he looks backwards bellamy's book is called looking backwards meaning to the bad old days of the late 19th century yeah morris is looking to a future that in some ways resembles the past that's right and and morris i think is quite explicit about that in his in his in his political writings as well as in this in, in this utopia so i mean if you use the framing which which he does at one point um that was adopted by by Marxists at the time, by the Social Democrats at the time. Uh, they were thinking about the, the transition of, of capitalism to socialism, that capitalism would provide the, the foundations for socialism in, in, in the sense that modernization and, and industrial technological change had provided the, the basis for well-being for all. Uh, and the problem was uh, distribution and the, the um, uh, the power arrangements, which made it impossible for the mass of the people to enjoy actually the rewards of, of that economic system. And so they talked about um, entering into, you know, moving from capitalism to socialism, socialism being a launch pad then for what they call communism. So the first part of the, the transition would be one where we would collectivize all of our, um, all of our possessions, our land, our industry, uh, and use it in order to enable people to, to have equal distribution on the basis of their work, or their labor. And then in the future, uh, we would evolve to a point where we would be able to um, perfect those systems and distribute on the basis of need. And Morris looks at this and he says, that's not good enough for me. That's not enough. Because what I want is a transformation in our modes of production. I don't want socialism just to be uh, the, uh, the management of an industrial and capitalist system. And he thinks of those things as connected but separate, I think. Uh, I don't want socialism just to be the management of that system. I want it to be a complete transformation. We have to change the way in which we work. We have to uh, find ways of producing without, uh, as, as if, um, well, not as if we didn't ever have industrialization, but as if we could remedy all of the ills that industrialization has brought us, one of which is capitalism, but also separate from that is the destruction of our natural environments and the social arrangements that go along with that. Excellent. 
So uh, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad we got to both of these things, which is the natural environment and the um, and the social arrangements around them. I mean, Kropotkin certainly states this over and over again. I would say overstates this in the book Mutual Aid, but that human human systems of living together work pretty well. Um, naturally, they stem they stem from evolution, and this is I, I find quite beautifully Morris's expression of how that could be and it's clear that he views um governmental systems as disrupting sort of the natural human feelings of community and working together in the same way that industrial systems destroy the natural environment and in the same way the the justification for these things is the betterment of of humanity we must implement these systems to prevent these bad things from happening. And Morris wants to turn it around and, and blame these systems for the unhappiness of life. I think that's right. And I think he thinks when he looks at political systems in particular, I think he thinks that um, they embody for him a kind of an individualist spirit, which is a spirit of self-advancement and um, um, I mean, exploitation, not in an economic sense, but in a in a way of, you know, boosting our prestige, boosting our advantages, competing with each other for uh, for honor um, and for self advancement and politics for him is is the dirtiest word, actually, although he's involved in politics, his, his view of institutional politics is quite different from the way in which he sees um, collective actions operating or direct actions or uh, community projects. He sees these as being not political because for him politics is this is this institutional framework which breeds division um, and uh, and which is designed actually to, to use power to the detriment of, of most people. So he wants systems that are going to, as you say, to, to build community, to, uh, to enable everybody to flourish not um, not on the basis of, of just having a kind of everybody has to accept that there's a common good. I mean, he is he is very liberal in his socialism. So he thinks that what is the common good comes from everybody realizing their individual ends, but they only do that in a collective in, in a in a in a cooperative environment, um, one which enables them to to tap into their creativity uh, to um, to enable their talents to, to find their own path. Excellent. All right, I'm going to bring in uh, David Graeber now, his his idea of bullshit jobs, which is, uh -huh. you know, what most people are doing, Graeber says, in the late 20th or early 21st century is, in fact, worthless or even, mm -hmm. even counterproductive. The way I like mm -hmm. to think of this is we're told that a fantasy like Neutral Nowhere wouldn't work because it's just too expensive. There's not enough mm -hmm. uh, resources for everyone to have food or shelter if we don't have these factories that mm -hmm. are producing this food and shelter. And uh, Morris, you know, in so many ways, Graeber is influenced by Kropotkin and Morris. Graeber's arguing that, in fact, most of the work that people do takes food and shelter and adds nothing to it. And the reason why we have to have factories producing our food is because we've got people eating food and adding nothing. Or Graeber argues, you know, taking away from society. So if you're a, most forms of professionalism, if you're an accountant 
or a lawyer. You are consuming food, but you are not giving anything back materially. And then the people who are actually producing your food or your resources are, are miserable and they are miserable at your behalf and then, on, sorry, on your behalf. And then you state as a professional, well, it just has to be this way. Morris suggests that those lawyers and accountants would actually be much happier farming or making pottery or something like that. And it's a world in which virtually everyone is an, an artisan. And I'm sure the economists yeah. would say the math doesn't check out, but Graeber says actually the math shows that uh, lawyers and, and other forms of professionals um, take up tons of resources. And for the most part, they do it in the name of corporate capitalism, which doesn't add anything to the yeah. world. So it's this yeah. world in which you can walk down the street and everyone is surrounded. I mean, he goes shopping and they don't really know why it's called shopping. Um, mm. It's like, oh yeah, shopping is what it's called when you go around and, and, and get things that you like. We're not really quite sure. That's just what it was called back in the day. And every time he sees something beautiful, he thinks, well, I, I can't afford this. Yeah. And the people around him are like, what do you, what do you mean afford? I mean, oh. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's plenty of time and labor mm. to surround all of us with beautiful things because we've yeah. stopped we've stopped forcing people to do anything they don't want to do. Yeah. But we've also stopped uh, allowing people to do things that have no, or I mean, I shouldn't say allowing, we stopped forcing people to do things that have no real virtue, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so so we don't produce commodities anymore. Uh, right. We produce things for use. Um, and we fashion those things uh, largely by our own uh, skill and talent. So. Uh, and we're bestowing love on the things that we produce because we're doing it in order to, I mean, not only to, to show off what skills and talents we have, but also because we love our fellow creatures uh, and we want to, to ensure that, that if they have something that we produce, they love it because they need to cherish it because yeah. there's only so much you can produce and it's far less than what capitalism will produce. So these things have to last. Uh, so you have less, you produce uh, over, over uh, you take more time to produce, but you're not producing commodities, you're producing essentially gifts. I mean, one of the first things that happens mm -hmm. in the book is when he meets Dick um, and Dick gives him a pipe and tobacco uh, and Morris tries to give him money for this. So Dick's <laughs> one of the characters in the book and Dick looks at him and, and sort of says, well, why would you give me anything for this? You know, I've, you know, this is a pipe, this is for you. I made it, you know, this is for you. Um, and, and that's how the economy works. So, I mean, the, I mean, in terms of its macro implications, I mean, it doesn't add up in, in any kind of contemporary economics uh, for any kind of contemporary mainstream economist, of course, because it doesn't pay for itself mm -hmm. because it's not designed to produce profit. Um, it's also a much more uh, autarkic system. So uh, people are producing for their local needs. Uh, we don't have, as I mean, Morris would, would um, well, was already um, uh, deeply concerned about the way in which uh, trade was being globalized and the implications for that, as indeed was Kropotkin. Uh, so what they're trying to do is to think of um, what it is that you need to exchange in order to, to enable you, your, your lives to be enriched. You're not thinking about 
what it is you need to produce in order to sell on the market such that you can get money uh, and then go and buy some stuff. Um, you're also not thinking about, I mean, most of, of, I mean, a huge amount of Morris's criticism of, of capitalism um, is that we produce mass shoddy wares, mm -hmm. which are supposed to be disposed of. Uh, they're not supposed to last. And so we're continually exploiting resources to produce tat. Uh, and he says, you know, if you, you can't in the long term, and of course he's right, you can't sustain an economy on that basis. Um, and it's it, and the problems of it are even even worse when you think about which he does from the point of view of, of British imperialism, when you think about the costs uh, of that system across the globe uh, in terms of the exploitation of, of, of uh, colonial colonized peoples. So the whole system is corrupt and that's that's partly what he's trying to to overcome. And as you say, he also thinks about the, the utter waste uh, that there is in, in the in the bureaucracy and, in, and that he gets, I think, really from. Uh, or one of the people he likes, he talks about is Charles Fourier, who um, was writing in the 1840s uh, and is regarded as one of the, sort of the utopian socialists. And, and he has this, I think Morris uses it at one point, you know, that we we pay people to dig holes so that we can pay other people to fill them <laughs> up again. Uh, and that's an analogy for the way in which the, the capitalist system operates. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, and I was just struck as you were talking about the problems we, you know, fast fashion has become a relatively yeah. common thing for people to discuss, but it's, you know, the, the problem is we are making, we are making stuff for profit and sort of along the way, some human needs are, are met, but that does not seem to be, meeting human needs does not seem to be the goal no. of the system. No, no, I mean, we've, you know, we're now into the, into, into a, an era where um, there's actually a battle going on with uh, with tech you know, manufacturers of, of tech, tech goods uh, to ensure that, that you can provide parts and that you give instructions about how to repair. I mean, it's not that long ago that actually you could repair your own car, uh, you could rebuild your own hi-fi. Uh, we don't have hi-fi anymore, of course, but you know, <laughs> computers, all of this stuff just goes into landfill. So the idea that you might reuse or re repair something is now part of the battleground um, because we get so used to chucking stuff away. Uh, but you know, what about the diets? I mean, that's that's a that's another you know absolute disaster in terms of human health, uh, in terms of uh, land use, in terms of you know if you want to feed the world, then the way to do it is not by producing burgers for the West. It's simply not the way. Um, <laughs> Yes, and I think and I think Morris got that. I think Morris got that absolutely okay, right. First. And you're precisely right that it, it's an imperialist project. I mean, Hobbsbaum has done great work that you know the the uh, textile industry of India was destroyed in order to create British power. It was not it was yeah. not destroyed to, to to clothe the world. You don't destroy no. a textile industry if what you want is to clothe the world. You destroy a textile industry if what you want is power over mm. what is being produced and where and by whom. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm struck. Yeah. So we're we're recording this in 2022, although I'm planning to release this in 2023. But um, we're you and I, Ruth, are, are living through this moment of high inflation. Hopefully, dear listener, you, you remember uh, the middle of 2022 as the peak of the inflationary moment. We yeah. will, we'll see what happens. But, um, uh, you know, there were these two... Uh, economists in the U.S., both affiliated with Harvard, one named Larry Summers, also both affiliated with the uh, Obama administration, 
one named uh, Larry Summers, the other one named Jason Furman. And th they both came out with their predictions of how many months of unemployment we needed in the United States to get inflation under control. So this is this is the macroeconomic answer. It's like, so we've got a problem, which is inflation is too high. And what we need is for people to not be doing work so that they, you know, struggle to get by, and that will eventually get the problem under control. So when you say that that, that, that this doesn't make sense from a macroeconomic standpoint, of course it doesn't. But from yeah. where I'm sitting, macroeconomics has ceased to make sense. Makes sense, yeah. The pro yeah. So Morris has multiple times, well, not not Morris in the book. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. The name, is it Will? No, of course it's not William. The old man he meets who who tells him about the old Hammond. Old, old Hammond. Hammond. So old Hammond is a character we we need to introduce. He's uh he's not old enough to remember um all of the events of the revolution, but he's old enough to remember when things were different, and he has an interest in history. So he yeah. knows the events of the revolution. And old Hammond says over and over again, the goal of the old system was to produce as much as possible while giving labor the smallest amount of payment, not using the least amount of labor because they would be happy to use <laughs> a huge amount of labor, but giving labor the smallest share of the pie. So when I yeah. read Harvard economists say, well, we've, we've got a problem, it's called high inflation and the solution is to fire people. And I, he I hear precisely old Hammond's complaint the goal of yep. macroeconomics is to reduce the amount of money that goes to the people who are producing the things. Yeah, and that's I fine. can't I can't see that Morris got that wrong. No. In... And he calls and he calls it wage slavery, and he means it. Mm -hmm. That's not just uh, that's not just rhetoric. Uh, he thinks that it is a system of enslavement, and that the people who uh, are dependent on on you know the crumbs basically uh, that that the uh, that the capitalist system will will give them um, are not only being, I mean, uh, you know, are not only forced to do uh, the work that they do, but they, they get they get absolutely uh, no joy out of it, and and it kills them when they're young. I mean, that's that's the other thing. Uh, I recently went to the potteries uh, where Morris uh, had. Uh, this is a place. This is in Staffordshire, so this is in the um, the middle, the, the West Midlands, basically. Uh, and it's the area where Wedgwood set up and, and where all of the pottery was made in, in the UK. And, and Morris had a, he said he, he did some work up there before for, for part of the, the, the stuff he did with the firm. Um, but I found out, I mean, at one point they had something like 2000 factories, 2000 chimneys burning there. Um, and the average um, life expectancy was 47. Something like half of the children who were born there died uh, before the age of five. Uh, so that's how that's how poor conditions were uh, for for the working classes, uh, and that's what that's the kind of condition that he sees uh, when he's writing News from Nowhere. So when you read News from Nowhere, um, I mean it's worth also reading, you know, Engels' um, uh, description of, of uh, Manchester workshops. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind how much a reversal this this book is supposed to be. This you know this is painting a picture of a of an entirely different, better world, and he means it. You know he thinks it's possible. We just lack the will to bring it into being. That's that's kind of part of the message, I think. And I think you know something for me that 
uh, I mean, I have this conversation with my students all the time. I, I don't think that things have changed much from the situation you're describing. It's just that we've moved those circumstances to other countries. Yeah. So I'm in the US, you're in the UK. We have a sense that, you know, people are no longer working under these conditions. And if you ask, <laughs> if you ask economists, why don't we just build things in the United States or the UK? And they'll say, well, the labor is too expensive, yeah. by which they mean they yeah. can't force people to work in those conditions anymore. Yeah. So your, your, your glorious progress, dear listener, if you are in, in one of these uh, modern, industrial, humane countries where children are not allowed to work, well, you're, you're still allowed to buy garments made by children, by children. whose yeah. life expectancy has been destroyed. So the numbers still are not are, yeah. not, are not adding up. If you think yeah. the industrial technocratic system has worked because we don't have child labor anymore, it's really more that the child labor has been moved outside of your national boundary. And that's yeah. not that's not good enough. Yeah, me, no, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, and I think you know, one of the one of the other um, the very strong kind of themes that you get in the conversation between Old Hammond and and Morris is that there's no you know there's no middle ground here. There's there's no reform. You do have to to, to utterly transform the system, and you do it by transforming labour through art. Uh, until that you until you enable people. Uh, to produce what they want to produce by and and use their uh, creativity to do it, then then we're, we're not going to get anywhere. That's yeah. that's um, Morris's bottom line, I think. That's why I find Graeber's bullshit jobs idea so worthwhile because people say, oh well, you know, but you can't just let people do whatever they want to do because they will not contribute to society. And Graeber says, well, a corporate lawyer does not contribute. To society. So in fact, we have many, many people not contributing to society right now. And Morris right. and Graeber both argue that if you let pe leave people alone, they will contribute yep. to society. They will maybe write poetry um, or make music, or maybe they will grow tomatoes, or maybe they will make plates, or maybe they will care for children. And the world we have now in which harried professionals are busy in their offices while other people, often the people themselves are imported from the same places where child labor exists, care for their children. Morris would say, this is, you're telling me this is the, the system that makes sense economically, the system in which uh -huh. someone has to travel from the Philippines to watch your children so that you can do a job which only exists to exploit the people in the Philippines. Wouldn't it be simpler? People say this is a fantasy, but I think it's, it's hard-nosed. Wouldn't it be simpler if you just tried to grow some food and mm. you and your neighbors shared the the task of caring for your children. That seems to me actually much yeah. more pragmatic. Yeah, we're told this is a silly utopian idea. Yeah, no, I agree. And and you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the whole concept of the free rider, um, <laughs> you know, and, how, and how that how that plays out in order to show that we can't cooperate or that there, you know, the risks are, are so high. Uh, and yet we work, as you say, in a system which enables a lot of people uh, actually to opt out of, of, of any meaningful work um, and reap huge rewards from doing so. Um, and, you know, Morris sort of counters the objection of, you know, the, the free rider in the book. Uh, and basically the answer is that, you know, where you have um, where you have this, uh, this 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 special mixture, I guess, of 
uh, of voluntarism and community, then actually, you know, it's very rare for someone to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm simply going to, uh, <laughs> to live off your labor. Uh, it may be that someone's decided today, I don't want to do it. But, but most of the time, actually, people feel that there is some kind of um, uh, duty that they have to other people uh, in order not only to look after themselves, but to make sure that other people are also being uh, looked after. That it's, it's a reciprocal relationship, and that's how it works. Yeah, this brings us back to, to human nature. So um, the, the, the Star Trek solution to this problem is that human nature has, has changed. By the time we get to the 80s and 90s version of Star Trek, the next generation, virtually every individual that we see at least strives at all time to take a long view and do what's best for humanity. They are all calculating technocrats for, for good. And I think mm -hmm. um, this is an analysis from this guy named Manu Sadia, and I think this is absolutely right. Like to, to create a technocratic world, we need every single human being to be a, a technocrat. And at some point they will get rid of the factories because they will see that the factories are actually um, problematic from a resource allocation standpoint or, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and if you want a world without bosses and without this kind of coercion, exploitation, wage slavery, you're indulging in a, in a fantasy of human nature, according to mm. the advocates for it. And Morris, again, turns that around and says, mm. no, someone says in the book, um, I think Morris says, well, what's the reward for labor? And someone says the reward for labor is life. Like you, 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 you get yeah. to live and and eat, but of course, as you just said, beyond life, it is community. Yeah, it is compassion. It is joy. That's yeah. so human nature as it exists is primed for those things, and an artisanal yeah. production system works with those things. Exactly right. So he has. I mean, he often talks. He so he talks. One of the one of the words that Morris likes using is necessity. Uh, so there's a necessity. Uh, that we have to deal with in the world in, in, in thinking about our humanity and our necessity is that we have to work in order to live. Um, and, and I guess that, that, that has a kind of a, a religious connotation too, but, but Morris says, no, this is just a fact. You know, if you don't work, you don't live. Uh, so the question then is how do you organize or how do you, how do you organize your, uh, your social life? How, what, what arrangements can you make? How can you, how can you change your environments in order to make that necessity uh, appear as if it's not a necessity anymore. Uh, because once you, once you can enjoy uh, doing what you have to do, it appears as if it's, it's, it's a pleasurable thing. And, and, and news from nowhere tells us that we can, we can pretty much reduce our consciousness of necessity. We can't get rid of the necessity, but we can reduce our consciousness of the necessity by changing our, our modes of production. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to change our, uh, our environment such that we are brought into community with other people. So, I mean, the whole, I mean, and I think Kropotkin's argument is this too, you know, you don't change human uh, nature, you don't change people's moral outlooks uh, what you do is you change their conditions uh, and you bring out the best in them uh, and you enable them to build relationships which are uh, based on trust, uh, but which also um, allow for failure. So one of the things that Morris talks about in the book is that, you know, people do have 
uh, intimate relationships, they don't always work out. Uh, so how can the community support people who fall out of love, uh, uh, do so amicably, um, take care of their children? Uh, how, can we, how can we arrange this so that people aren't at each other's throats and competing uh, over possession of the commodity of their children, which is pretty much uh, how our contemporary societies work. So he does allow for these for, for relationships to fail. What he's trying to say is that we can just deal with these things differently. Uh, but we do, if you're going to do that, you, you need time and you need trust to do so. And again, it's the legal apparatus and yep. the commodification of life that, that create the problem that the legal apparatus uh, claims to solve. Um, you know, something uh, Ian Forrest says is that when, um, when the legal apparatus is being developed and the state apparatus is being developed by, you know, someone like Henry VIII, it's not being developed in order to create democratic socialism. And so they very much knew what the point of that legal apparatus was it was to keep people in in power and then yeah. the uh a, a a liberal or a you know state socialist would say aha we can use these mechanisms to solve the problems of divorce and morris is saying well the problem of people falling out with one another that have children is a is a necessity you're not going he's not going to create a fantasy that prevents that but in fact the solution lies um, within humanity as well. Finding a, a solution to this is also a human necessity. And the apparatus that was created to say, uh, take the Catholic Church's wealth and give it to the monarchy of England is not the correct apparatus to uh, adjudicate family life. That's a, it's, it's a mistake you have made when you turn yep. to the state for a solution yep. to these problems. I think he is a sort of um, an intuitive um direct activist in the sense uh that he he will always default to a position where he thinks that it's better for people to resolve their own problems rather than uh devolve them to somebody else um and uh so in that sense he is he is sort of naturally anarchistic he he wants people to make their own decisions uh, well, I mean, you could call it liberal. I mean, it's, I mean, it is an old-fashioned liberal notion that you know people should, you know, people are the best judges of their own interests. And and basically, I think Morris pushes that idea and says, so how do we make that work uh, so that it so that it so that we take the the aggressive sting out of it, so that we take the competition out of it. Uh, but he does, yeah, as you say, he wants people to to resolve their own differences. He doesn't want to pretend that they don't exist. I must admit, and this, I don't need to go on about this, has come up in many podcasts. This is a huge sticking point for people on the left, at least in the United States, because at least going back to Lincoln and the Civil War, the federal bureaucracy is seen as something that can be used to bring freedom and justice and, and liberty to all. So, I mean, one of the most obvious examples is the system that takes uh, children um, away from their parents in the name of the good, for the good of the children. It is very difficult in my experience, in my lived experience, to talk to an American leftist and say, well, 
I don't know what to do about these children. We've got to figure it out. But I'm skeptical that a bureaucrat with a spreadsheet is the answer to the solution. I read a wonderful essay where someone pointed out that you, your children can, part of the spreadsheet that gets your children taken away from you can be uh, dirty dishes in the sink. And if you are, mm -hmm. uh, if, if you are a wealthy professional, you can have dirty dishes in the sink and the state won't do anything about it. So convincing American leftists that there is a way, we can figure out ways to deal with these problems and help people, but state bureaucracy is not it. Those no, conversations the, don't go well, yeah. in my experience. No, and, but you know, and there's a, you know, it's it's very easy, I suppose, to point to the, uh, to the examples where, uh, you know, children have been left in environments where they have been abused, neglected, killed. Um, but actually, that's often because they haven't been taken away by the bureaucracies. So the bureaucracies are never very good at identifying these problems or because they've been given over to other authorities, mm -hmm. often the church, uh, who then systematically abuse the children. Um, and the other problem is, you know, with the with the, the sort of the idea of the benevolent judge is that, you know, as you say, it's the you know, what are the criteria to decide when when uh, to decide a child's best interests, you know, because. You know, if you're if you say, well, actually, we have to take children away from single mothers. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, absolutely. You know that that's gone on in this country um, for or, most of the post-war period. Two two men cannot have children. Um, I mean, a, a big breakthrough that what what finally got gay marriage passed in the United States. Well, I mean, passed. It was legally ruled legal by the Supreme Court. Was all sorts of research that showed that two uh, a family with two fathers was whatever you want to put it you know ju just as good for the children as a family with a mother and a father and if that's if that's the solution to the problem is social scientists judging queer parents until they are <laughs> deemed acceptable this ca this yeah. cannot be to me at least the the road we want to go down yeah yeah i mean yes exactly um you know and if it's it's one thing to um, to to ask someone to arbitrate for you in a particular dispute because you think that that's going to to enable mm -hmm. you to resolve the conflict, and another thing to say we must have an arbiter who's permanent and fixed and who will always decide neutrally because that I think Morris would argue is a fiction. Um, they're never neutral, uh, and as soon as you make someone permanent and fixed, then you're going to be basically entrenching. Uh, a system of power which is uh, ultimately destructive. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to note here. I mean, I don't recall that child abuse comes up in this novel, but a a, a murder or a murder, a homicide, yeah. we should say, does happen. It is based on you know on on sex on desire. Uh, Morris is not. I'm going to compare this to Star Trek again. This would be an unthinkable thing happening in the universe of Star Trek. No one has passions in Star Trek that they cannot contain, or occasionally they do, and it's revealed that they are under mind control, or they are a clone, or something like that. Morris is asking us to believe in a world in which crimes of passion still exist, but the juridical apparatus does not exist, and, and everyone's very worried that the murderer, or the killer, I should say, because it's not clear it's murder in that sense, um, it's a it's a crime of passion. It seems to have been in self defense, and everyone's worried that he is going to commit suicide, and yeah. that's the 
that's the danger. And they all think, oh, well, that would be very bad. But no one suggests putting him in a straitjacket. <laughs> no, um, that's right. And yeah. again, having spent decades of my life as a as a left liberal, there, there there's even a part of me that rebels against this. Shouldn't there be someone in charge who <laughs> who takes care of this? And precisely for the reasons you've just outlined, I, I don't think that's right. But Morris is certainly rowing against the tide in the idea that you can create a utopium when this sort of thing still happens. And then it is a a personal and indeed a community tragedy, but yeah. not something that requires an outside authority to deal with. That's right. And and, and that's right. I mean, I think, you know, one could sort of perhaps push Morris a bit and say, uh, again, it's, it's his, his kind of notion of necessity in the sense that his view is uh, that you're never going to get rid of the uh, the jealousies and rivalries that, uh, that 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 come into personal relationships, into intimate relationships, but you know, I think you know he could. I think his answer would be the same thing that you know we could we could say you know perhaps you're never going to to have a society where you don't have someone coveting somebody else's goods. I mean, he says in *Use from Nowhere* that doesn't happen, but the but the solution would be the same for him. And and again, as you say, although you don't have a case of of a child being hurt in use from nowhere, you do have a divorce or the equivalent of a divorce. And, and, a, and the same response comes back, that this is not just a problem for the two uh, parents, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a community problem. You know, we have to, to take some interest, not interfere, but we have to take some interest to ensure that everybody in this relationship is supported and cared for. Uh, and, and I think that's his starting point. It's about care and support rather than punishment and revenge. Yeah, you know, Rachel Carson says that, you know, one of the worst things that can happen is you can look at an environmental problem and think, oh, I'm sure the government will take care of this. And, <laughs> and it seems to me the same. I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about children who are being harmed or even uh, a, a parent who cannot get to all of their dishes, his or her dishes, speaking as a, a stay-at-home parent who could not get to the dishes, it would uh, it would take a society based on exploitation, based on uh, competition, to not have people reach out and and help to find the right place for that child, or simply to help out with the with the dishes. It's that that is the product of a capitalistic. It's it's almost an ideology. And then yeah. the state becomes the solution to this set of problems that were in fact created by this, the, the, not necessarily by the state, but by the same set of 